0: We've been in this series um, going through the book of Mark. When you open the book, right away you get the, the intro that tells you exactly what it's going to be, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The very first words, the very first verse, it tells you exactly what to expect in the book. And then as soon as you're through that, we're introduced to a new character, John the Baptist. And you get this picture of kind of a wild man. Who is covered in camel hair? Who eats locusts and honey? And he's just—he's out in the wilderness doing his thing. You kind of get a picture of like a burly, manly man, kind of kind of guy. You know, that's what you you picture when you think about John the Baptist. And he's preaching this message of the pap- baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what John the Baptist is out there doing. That's verses four through eight, then you go to nine through eleven, and it's almost like. The worlds are colliding a little bit. Jesus comes down to the river, John and, and Jesus met. I mean, they probably would have met before because they were cousins after all. Um, so they probably would have met at some point. So John knew who he was, but they were meeting. Jesus at this point was, was relatively unknown. To the rest of the world, he hadn't really started his ministry yet. Uh, but you have to imagine as they got together that there was a certain knowing, right? In John, there was a certain admiration and a knowing of what Jesus would become for John. He, I think, he knew what was was to come for Jesus, at least to some degree. And then Jesus is baptized. He's brought down to the water. He's baptized, and he hear the voice of God say. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And you see the spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. And in that moment, Jesus is designated by God as the promised deliverer. And he's empowered and equipped for ministry by the Holy Spirit. And immediately, that word we've talked about a few times, immediately he goes out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. Right To to go to battle and he's tempted He's, he's there for 40 days. It's not an easy time. He struggles through it, but he goes to battle with Satan. He defeats Satan. He overcomes the temptations. If you read other parts of the other Gospels, you'll see the, the individual temptations. And in that moment, he's reestablishing harmony between himself and creation, and he's ushering in a new age of salvation. And then he departs from the wilderness, and that's where we pick up the story this morning. Chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. And it says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. John's arrest signifies the end of one public ministry and the beginning of another. Right, right here in this part of the book, you see a dividing point when John's public ministry, his time in the spotlight, his time as, as you know, the prophet everybody wanted to listen to, his time is over. And Jesus is now stepping into his public ministry, his time, his, his spotlight. And John's message had been a, a message that the kingdom was coming. That sometime in the future, the kingdom was coming, but Jesus' message was the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here now. No longer do we have to wait, it's here right now. He uses that word, uh, time, and in the Greek, it's kairos. You know, when we think about time, we think about time in the sense of seconds, minutes, hours, days. We think about time chronologically, typically. But what he means in this passage, the time, Is about a favorable time or an opportune, a significant time. He doesn't mean that everything's lined up and at this singular, like this is a designated second. That's not what he means when he says the time is here. He's talking about this is a favorable, opportune time. This is a a time full of weight, full of importance. This is a, a time that will never be forgotten. For generations and generations, the Israelites had been preparing, right? They had been in this time of exile. When you think about back through the story, you had the Israelites in Egypt, and then they leave, they go into the promised land, they experience a few really good years, right, with King David and Solomon. They experience some wealth, they experience power, they overcome their enemies, everything's going great, and then they sin. And it's like God casts them out of the promised land. And everything that they thought they had gets cast aside. They lose their identity. And then they're told by the prophets, somebody is coming. A Savior is coming. A time is going to come when everything is going to be fixed. And for years and years and years, they waited. And this is that divinely appointed time of fulfillment. This is the time when God's promises had finally arrived with Jesus in his ministry. When they heard, when the Israelites heard that the kingdom was at hand, they would have immediately thought about those prophets. Right? Isaiah 52.7 talks about peace, happiness, news of salvation, a new reign, right? a new ruler, a new king coming. Isaiah 61.1 talks about the ending of of poverty, comfort for those who are brokenhearted, those who had experienced loss, who didn't have what they once had, who longed for what was, for freedom from oppression. And all of those things that the the prophets talked about are what Jesus came offering the people, but not, not the way that they expected, not the way that they thought. What they wanted was a political leader who would lead them, who would take them into battle, who would conquer their enemies, who would restore their prosperity, restore their wealth, bring them back to prominence, right? Who would make them like the sought-after people, who they would replace the Romans, they would be the power. But what they got was a guy in some words, repent and believe, they didn't know who Jesus was yet. They didn't know he was the son of God. And what they got was Jesus saying, repent and believe in the gospel. In verse 15, we have a promise. Right? The first of those is, is the time is fulfilled. The promise, the reminder that the time that we've been waiting for, the time that we've been just looking forward to, that things would be restored is now. That's the first half of the promise. The second half is that the kingdom of God is at hand. All of that that time waiting is culminating right now, in this very moment. And then it's followed by instructions for citizenship. Citizenship isn't something that is easy to receive, there's a process. You don't just get to come. And, and waltz in and you know, take a flight and you're just automatically a citizen when you set foot on soil. That's not the way that it works. There's a process. There's paperwork. There's things you got to learn, things about the country you need to understand to become part of that country, part of that kingdom. And the, the instructions for citizenship here in Mark are repent and believe in the gospel. Those are the instructions that Jesus gives us to belong, to be part of this kingdom that's at hand. So what does it mean? How do we do that? How do we repent and believe? So let's look at that first word, repent. The dictionary defines repent as a, to feel regret or remorse for a wrongdoing. I don't think that's quite right. I think there's more to it than that, right? And we talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. Chad talked about how when you repent you turn from what was old right from the old life you 180 degrees to something that's new right you can't just stay in the old we have to turn and go to the new right it's it's more than more than just turning though it's turning from our old life having rule and reign over ourselves to submitting ourselves and giving ourselves to god it's not just a matter of taking our life and doing our life differently. It's like stepping in into an entirely new life. It's an old person and a new person. It's, it's, it's more than just turning. There's more to it. Repentance is, is, is fully sacrificing that old way. Right? Have you ever tried to form a new habit without first getting rid of the old habit? When you try to, you wanna start building new rhythms or new, like a new way of doing life, but you're not ready to get rid of the old ways, it just doesn't work, right? It'd be like if you smoked your entire life and decided you wanted to become a marathon runner, and you just kept doing things the same way. Now, there may be a one in a million who that works out for, but for most people, you're gonna have to change some habits, right? Because in order to run, you gotta have some good lung capacity. Okay, I, I'm not a smoker and I can't run more than a mile or two. So I can't imagine with you know, some diminished lung capacity what that would look like for me trying to run a marathon. We have to get rid of the old habits. You have to cast those aside. You have to set them aside in order to develop newer, healthier habits to replace them, right? It's turning from the old, getting rid of the old entirely and stepping into the new, right? That's repentance and believe. And when you look at that passage, it doesn't just say believe the gospel. It says believe in the gospel. And those words are intentional. This is actually the only place that those words are used undoubtedly in a very particular form in the New Testament. And it reinforces the idea that to believe in is more than just knowledge. To believe in something is more than just knowing something. I can tell you one plus one equals two, and you would agree with that. One plus two equals three. You would agree that. I could tell you that I can paint a house, and you might believe me, but you may not welcome me into your living room to paint it. Right? There's a certain level of commitment involved the moment that you say, oh, you can paint? Well, why don't you come paint my living room? Because that could go really poorly, or it could go really well, but there's a certain level of commitment when you believe in something versus believing something. And that's what Jesus is talking about. When he's talking about believing in, he's talking about belief with commitment. Belief that will stand behind. Belief that we're willing to change for. Belief that we're willing to invest in. Jesus said the kingdom of God was at hand. And that word or that phrase, kingdom of God, appears 14 times in Mark. And that's important. But Israel's belief. Was that that meant physical deliverance? We've talked about that. They believed that that meant some kind of physical deliverance. They were going to be delivered from the Romans. They were going to be restored. But Jesus' primary goal wasn't physical deliverance. Jesus' primary goal was spiritual deliverance. There may be some bits of physical deliverance. Right? If you look through his ministry, there was lots of healings. There are miracles there was certainly physical deliverance, but that was not his primary objective. His primary goal was to see spiritual deliverance in the lives of his people. And when Jesus talks about the kingdom coming, he's talking primarily about his reign, his dominion, his his rule, his sovereignty in our hearts more than anything else. Yeah, there's going to be some benefits that come from that, from putting our life in Christ to to seeing his, his people follow him, there would be some benefits down the road. But really, he's talking about submitting ourselves to his will. That's what he means. But this is why repentance as a first step is so important. right? We have to repent, give up the old ways of doing and thinking, and we have to trade them in for God's ways because it's really difficult to believe in without first repenting. And if we can't set aside what our old ways are, how are we supposed to invest in the new? If we can't free up the resources, if we can't free up some space, how can we invest in the new? If we can't first get rid of that, what does it say about our believe in? Right? What does it say about our commitment to what we say we're believing? And there's an underlying truth all the way through this past, the passages we're talking about this morning. And it's this. God initiates and we respond. God initiates and we respond. God extends his hand to us. He lays it all out there for us. And now we're faced with a choice. Right? He tells us the promises. He tells us what he's giving us. He says the kingdom is at hand. It's right now. The time has been fulfilled. Now here's what you have to do. Repent and believe in the gospel. The question is, are we ready to do that? Are we really ready to repent and believe in the gospel? Are we there yet? And that's the first application this morning. Are you ready to repent and believe? If you're somebody who's new, who hasn't given your life to Christ yet, maybe you you started coming and we were talking about the Abundant Life series and something was tugging at your heart and you're thinking, man, this sounds really good, almost too good to be true, but maybe there's something to it. Maybe God was tugging at your heart, but for whatever reason you, you held off. He said, No, not yet. You know, maybe during the Christmas season there was a, something about God coming from, from earth or from, from heaven to earth. And there's something in that story that, that stuck out to you. And you felt God tugging at your heart. And still you're holding yourself back. Maybe you're, for whatever reason you weren't ready to repent yet, to turn from the old to the new. Don't wait. That's the first application this morning. Repent and believe. Turn, turn now. Don't don't wait. And you don't have to have some kind of special words, some kind of special prayer. It's just a matter of, of turning from the old and submitting to the new. Within that, though, is a word of caution for all of us. The gospel is both, both personal and social. Right? There is a very personal aspect of the gospel where it's, it's inter- introspective. Right There's an inner peace that comes along with the gospel. There's an inner assurance that we have in the gospel. There is an inner peace that's associated with a certain fulfillment in realizing our true potential of who God created us to be. Right? There's a personal side of the gospel. There's also a social side where we are called to then go and change the world. We're called to minister to the people around us. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to be a light right in the darkness, a city on a hill. Those two cannot be separated. You can't have just the personal side of the gospel, and you can't have just the social side of the gospel. They have to coexist. Otherwise, there's something other than the gospel. God has called us to live both of those. So that's the second application, Right? For those of us who are believers, maybe we've been in the church our entire lives and heard the gospel presented all sorts of different ways, and we believe it. But the question is, is the gospel present in your life in a way that's accurate to what Christ has called us to? Is the gospel present in your life in a way that reflects accurately the gospel that Christ preached, the gospel that Christ demonstrated and lived? A gospel that reflects total submission, that reflects loving your neighbor, that reflects making your disciples. As we continue into the book of Mark, verses 16 through 20, we're kind of picking up a new section. We're shifting into the next story, into a new scene. And that new scene finds us, or we find in the Sea of Galilee. I think we got a picture for that one. Right, so if you can imagine, this is the Sea of Galilee, in the Capernaum area, which is likely where Jesus was. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, 17 or seven miles wide. It's a big lake. It's not what we think of when we think of a sea or an ocean, right? Um, there were 16 ports on it, though. 16 ports on this lake. All that had to do with fishing, so that's pretty significant. And Fishing was the main means of economy and industry in the area. So as we're reading this story, picture yourself on the Sea of Galilee, kind of rocky, you know, not not the beaches we expect in Michigan. Um, This is the scene that we're we're walking into. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Quick before I move on, Peter and Andrew were likely throwing a net. They probably were just offshore a bit. They were waiting. They were throwing a net by hand to try to catch fish. So, just as you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about Jesus walking down the lake shore, this is what we're picturing. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Right. Jesus extends an invitation to his disciples. Like As he's walking along, he extends an invitation, the very same invitation, to both sets of brothers. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, there's a lot happening in these five verses. At first glance, it seems like it's very simple, a call to follow. But there's a lot more than just that. Just like in verse 14 through 15, when God takes the initiative, Jesus takes the initiative here, right? Jesus takes the initiative, and the disciples respond. This is, this is huge, and it doesn't necessarily connect in our culture the way that it would. Then, rabbis didn't reach out to people to become followers. Rabbis didn't, didn't go out and look for students. They didn't look for, for the best of the best. Students reached out to them. They would you know, go through an application process They'd try out, they'd demonstrate their, their willingness to become the best of the best, d- demonstrate that they were the best of the best, and then a rabbi would choose a student or choose students to follow him. Only once they proved themselves could they follow the rabbi. But in this case, Jesus goes out looking for the disciples. He goes out looking for people who weren't looking for him. Jesus reached out to the disciples without any kind of process, to do a job that the disciples at times indicate they weren't ready or knew that they were called to do. As you read through the Gospels, there's plenty of times when the disciples screw up, where they drop the ball, where they question if this is what they're called to, if they question if Jesus knows what he's called to. And yet, that's who Jesus chose. Right? Even in today's culture, people generally have to reach out and apply to be part of an apprenticeship program, right? You have to apply for that. You have to be chosen. But there's something special when somebody goes out of their way to look for somebody to mentor, right? To look for somebody to follow, and they ask you. They see a potential in you that you didn't see in yourself, and they choose you, and they ask you, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this passage, right? He sees the disciples. He sees something more in them than what they see in themselves, just like he sees more in us than we see in ourselves. Not only did Jesus initiate the calling, he went to where they were to to do it. He went to their workplace. He went to their their fishing grounds where they hadn't showered, they hadn't made themselves presentable, they'd been working all day. I'm sure it wasn't the greatest conditions. That's where he went because that's where he knew they'd be. Jesus meets people where they are physically and spiritually, and he calls them to something new. And that brings us to our third application. Meet people where they are. Meet people where they are. You know, we often feel the need to get people to come to church so that they can be changed. We feel like we got to get them through the doors and then they can be changed, but it's not what Jesus did, it's not where Jesus spent his time. He was in the, the temple, and the synagogues, and he taught there. But the majority of his teaching with his people happened outside the, the walls. Jesus went to people. He met people where they were. He knew where they would be, and he went there for them. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus carries a special authority. I remember reading this as a kid and thinking, what? Who just follows some guy they don't know? doesn't make sense. His perfect stranger could be some sort of wacko and they just follow. It doesn't, it doesn't make any kind of logical sense. But you remember at his baptism, the Spirit of God came and descended on him in a special way. It equipped him and empowered him for a special ministry. There was a certain draw, a certain power in Christ that was unrecognizable, but unavoidable. You couldn't help but notice it. The disciples may have come in contact with Jesus at some time, but not in anything, any way significant enough for them to write about, not in any way significant enough for them to put in the Gospels. His ministry really hadn't started that much yet, so they didn't know who he was. And still, he said, follow me, and immediately they followed him. Jesus carries a special authority. The third thing, they respond immediately. Remember, we've been talking about that word, euthus. It's used 59 times in the New Testament, 41 of those in Mark, 11 of those in the first chapter. That's important. When you see this, a lot of things happen immediately. And that's what God wants from us. They didn't delay. The disciples, they they didn't drag their feet. They didn't say, hey, we got to check your references and see if you're the guy we want to follow or not. They dropped what they were doing and they followed him. In addition to that, you look at James and John, and they're just they are a great example of following completely. Not only was it immediate, but it was complete. They left everything that they had behind. Peter and Andrew, it seems like they are doing this to survive, provide for their family, maybe make a little bit of money, put food on the tables, right? They've they got a small operation. They're casting their nets from the shore. But John and James, they're in the boat, right? They're in the family business. They're working with their dad. They've got employees. You kind of get the sense that this is, this is a large-scale business. It's not, it's not like they're, they're dabbling. This isn't a hobby. This is something that they do to make money. You get the idea that there's some sort of wealth there. If they have enough money to, to own boats and to employ people, they're, they're making a good amount of money. And still they left it all behind. When God called out to them, they dropped it where it was and they went and followed him immediately. Jesus wants us to not only respond immediately, but to respond completely. Right, That idea of repentance, turning from the old to what's new, leaving what was old behind and moving into a new life completely. Not partially, but completely. You ever been on a, a dock? You know, we've got a lot of lakes around here. You, hopefully, probably you've, you've been on a dock before where you've you got one person who's trying to hold the boat while it's getting untied. Everybody else is stepping into the boat. and Maybe you're doing it with your feet. <laughs> right, you know where this is going, and it just, it just drifts, right? And eventually, it gets painful. You can't have your feet on the dock, in a foot, in a boat. You can't keep your feet in different places. You have to commit to one or the other. It's the same way. You know, God told us, or Jesus told us, that his discipleship would be painful. That's not the pain that he wanted. He doesn't want us to experience pain because we're trying to hold on to the old. He does, there, that's unnecessary pain. The pain that he expects that we'll experience is the pain from becoming something new. There's a pain there that's unnecessary when we try to hold on to what was instead of just fully giving over to what is. That's the fourth application this morning. Respond immediately and respond completely. It's very similar to repent and believe, right? When you look at this, I mean, it's, a, it's called a gospel for a reason. It's the good news. It's the message that we are called to respond to to put our lives in Christ. He wants us to repent and believe, and He wants us to follow immediately and completely. The fourth thing that we see in this passage is the words, I will make you become fishers of men. Mark is really particular about the words that he uses I will make you become fishers of men. He doesn't say, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you become fishers of men. It doesn't sound like something immediate. It's not something that happens immediately in a moment. It's a process of transformation. Jesus, uh, Jesus calls us to become disciples, and that call is a call to continual transformation. That, that phrasing indicates a process of transformation, potentially a painful one. Right When you look at the disciples, they frequently misunderstood his teachings. They failed to keep watch. They failed to be attentive. They didn't always stay faithful. Right? You think about Peter and denying Christ. They were not always faithful like they should be. And Jesus guaranteed that they would be persecuted. All of those things hold true. We don't always understand what Jesus is saying to us. We don't always get it. We sometimes doubt Sometimes we think we're hearing what he's saying, and it's really what we want to hear, and we do things that don't make sense and it winds up hurting us. There are times when we're we're not faithful and we walk away, and that's not easy, especially once we realize it. And there's times when we're going to experience persecution. We're going to experience those very same things. But that's part of the process. That's part of the process of transformation. It doesn't necessarily change. Overnight. God wants us to become fishers of men. You think about butterflies, right? They go into a cocoon. It's like this process of becoming something new. When I was thinking about transformation, this is one of the things that kept coming to mind. Butterflies, it's not necessarily a painful transformation, although nobody really knows, but we know, based on science, and being able to actually see through the cocoon and the chrysalis, is that they go in there, the caterpillars go in there, and all the unnecessary body parts are broken down to become something new. So when that butterfly emerges, it is literally a new creation. It's no longer what it was. It's something completely new and completely different than what it was when it went into the cocoon. Right? On, on one hand, you have the caterpillar which is bound to the ground, has legs, not the most beautiful creature. They're kind of slow, kind of boring. On the other hand, you have a butterfly. Right? They've got wings. They're able to fly. They're free. They can go where they want to go, do what they want to do. And most of the times, they're pretty majestic. And when you look at a butterfly up close. And the detail, the beauty in those creatures is amazing. And they have completely different food sources, completely different ways of doing things. They're a completely new creation. Just like when God takes us, we leave the old and we step into the new, we become completely new creations. We're given a Real purpose, a true purpose to go out and make disciples, to baptize them and to teach them to obey the commands that Christ has to help them find their identity. That's the same thing we're given a new identity, right? No longer are we children of the world. No longer do we base our identity on what I'm able to do, what I look like, what the world thinks of me, how much work I'm able to do, how good I am at my job. My identity is that of a child of God? Right? Our identity shifts from all the things that people see and perceive about us to what God sees and perceives about us. We become children of God, and our source of life is completely different. No longer does, I mean, yeah, we gotta have food, we gotta have water, those things are important. But we don't have to worry about the fact that they're coming because we have faith that Christ is going to give us what we need. Life no longer is about achieving those things, about finding those things, about acquiring those things. It's about living for God, knowing that those things are going to happen, having a purpose to fulfill. It's interesting that in Acts, Christianity would become to be known as the way. That's what they were called, the early Christians. It was the way. When you hear that phrase, it's like there is movement to it, right? The way. There is movement. There is transformation there. And it's not one of multiple ways. but it is this? The way. The only way. Not one of many, but the only way. To be a disciple requires a fundamental shift in our perspective. We need to start seeing things differently. No longer is it my life to live, but it's God's life to live through me. I become a vessel of what God is doing in the world. A vessel of his grace, his mercy, his hope. So, just a quick review. The four things that he does here, or shows here in verse 16 through 20. God took the initiative, the disciples responded. Jesus carries a special authority. The disciples respond immediately and completely. For Jesus transforms everything about their life, and he gives them a purpose. And he does it in only a way that Jesus can. He does it on their level. He does it with their language that they understand. They're out there fishing. He talks about becoming fishers of men. You know, if they were doing something else, if their trade was different, I have no doubt that the words he used would have been different. He met them where they were, and he spoke with a language they'd understand. You know, in the Old Testament, it was interesting. When they would talk about fishing, it was fishing for the purpose of judgment. It was fishing to find people for the purpose of judging them, give them what they deserve. And now in the New Testament, becoming fishers of men comes with a new purpose, to give life, to give what we don't deserve. In everything that Jesus does in this passage, he's doing in his own way. He's he's redeeming, recreating, restoring, redeveloping this relationship between himself and creation. And As we read through the Gospels, that's something I want to encourage you to keep your eyes open for. There's these little moments that are easy to pass by, that he's doing things that are just like kind of laying under the surface where he's totally creating that shift, right? That shift of paradigm, that shift in perspective to where something used to mean judgment and now all of a sudden it means life. And isn't that where we're all at? The old way is is judged. The old way is condemned. The old way is is nothing. Only when we step into the new way is there grace and hope and life. This morning, Jesus gives us two clear calls. The first is to repent and believe in the gospel. And the second is to follow and become. To follow and become what he has meant us to be all along. The question for us this morning is, are we ready to follow in the footsteps of the rabbi? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the words that you've given us in the gospel of Mark. Words not of condemnation, but words of hope and new life. You give us a second chance, a second lease on life. A chance to to leave behind the old and become something new. God, I just pray that you would continue to speak to us, that you would continue to open our eyes, to understand both the personal and the social side of the gospel, to live with an assurance of your grace, but to live with... We bow before you this morning, God, humble, with adoration, and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.